Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls, and it was like, you'll have to give us a ride. You can't fill us, though. He can't refuse. He'll let us in his car. Thoughts were all alone in this empty void. You know, the head in the fishbowl. This doesn't look right. They got close enough where he said he could see. Hey guys, we're back on Conspiracy Normal. Hope you guys enjoyed the last show with Steve Stockton and Cisco Murdoch. That was a really good one. Uh, tonight we have uh, the main guest that we have on is Mike Suave. We're going to talk about John Teeter, the time traveler, which should be interesting. Rob, I don't know if you know too much about that. Yeah, I've looked into this a little bit. I'm kind of excited about this one. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, but we do have Josh Cutchin on now for about 30 minutes here in our little intro. And we want to talk about episode 160. And I kind of wanted to get Josh's... Um, thoughts on the Joe Jordan show and what uh, some of the stuff that he talked about. So Josh, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. It's good to have you back. Always a pleasure to be among good friends. Absolutely. Um, Josh, I really wanted to get your thoughts on this because, you know, I know that you're a Christian and, but you are also part of the Where Did the Road Go crew. And most often on Where Did the Road Go, we get we you guys talk about, and I've been on the show before too, talking about some of the more well spiritual aspects of the UFO phenomenon, the alien abduction phenomenon. And I think in some ways it's a little different than some of the ways that Joe Jordan saw it. So I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on this on this stuff. Yeah, well, I think the first thing that I would have to say, and the, the biggest takeaway 
for me as a Christian is that I'm glad that he uh, found a spiritual path through this. I mean, I think that, you know, the way that the Where the Rogue Road Cruise tends to look at these things, it seems like that might almost be the purpose for him getting involved <laughs> to begin with on a cosmic level. But, you know, even as even as a Christian, to take that another step forward, I'm 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 glad that he found he found Christ through this. Um, and you know what? With a lot of his thinking, I, I think that I'm meeting him about three quarters of the way. Um, you know, I, I I find myself every day being more and more skeptical of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, not discounting the fact that it could have happened at some point in the past, or even that it might happen semi-regularly, but I don't think it describes the lion's share of phenomena. So I definitely agree with him on that. Um, the main problem that I kind of had, where I, where I wanted to take a step back and say, let's think about this a little bit more objectively, is to me it was the equivalent of, say, a someone, an armchair marine biologist, right? seeing that there have been a rash of shark attack sightings and telling people that whatever they see in the ocean is a shark and it's out to get them. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I certainly, y'all, y'all didn't talk about this too much, but I, I'm certain that if he thinks that like a lot of the abduction phenomena is demonological, um, he would have to sort of say that some of it could be, you know, angelic. But my sticking point is that there's a pretty wide gap in between there that just seems either nonsensical or completely neutral. I mean, you look at something like – not that this is exactly a paragon of an ironclad case, but you look at something like the Joe Simonton case. That wasn't negative. That wasn't good. You know, he, he traded yeah, water for yeah. pancakes. How does that fit in <laughs> – how does – yeah, how, how does that fit into this, this um, you know, sort of – I would, I would even as a Christian say reductive Judeo-Christian good versus evil thing, um, which is sort of where I guess I mean I, I'm sure that there are people even in my family who would say that I'm a bad Christian because I think that there is an ecosystem of spirit phenomena in the middle or an ecosystem of disembodied entity phenomena in the middle that is neither good nor bad um, that could possibly be swayed to a cause or has things better to do. Um, so that would sort of be my sticking point is I don't think you can. I don't think that you can just put everything in one basket or the other because there is all this 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 giant swath of ambiguity in the middle that just seems, you know, absolutely nonsensical. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And and I would sort of I would I, I think that like for me as a Christian, I see demonic activity when it's not explicit and obvious, like in the cases of alleged exorcism or sorry, alleged possession or you know, alleged infestation or something. I, I, I think that, um, I would tend to think that demonic activity manifests itself much in much more subtle ways. Like, you know, me saying something mean to someone <laughs> or me being selfish. I mean, that, that to me is that is the true influence of demonic activity on our lives because all those things add up and in, into a, you know, this dysfunctional world that we're living in. Um, you know, having said that, I also have to wonder like, where what while this extraterrestrial pageantry, if it is demonic, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of parallels, and this is why I'm saying that I'm meeting him like you know three quarters of the way on this. There are plenty of parallels, even down to certain names of entities that you can draw between uh, you know demonic uh, you know grimoires and whatnot, and uh, and and alleged extraterrestrial visitation. But it just it seems a little it's a little too neat for my tastes, I guess. Yeah, one of those would be what I've often heard is Sim Yaza from the 
Book of Enoch, which we kind of discussed a few shows ago. And then I think that there is a, in the Billy Meyer case, there's like the leader of the aliens, his name's Sim Haza or something like that. So there's, there's that similarity. But that's the only one that I can really think of. Are there others that you've seen? There are. Um, there was a George Van Tassel's contact uh, was a Solgonda, mm-hmm. um, which um, I believe was an article by uh, Ann Druffel and uh, someone else in, a, in an old MUFON journal that said that it looked like a portmanteau of soul, you know, sun. So, you know, uh, the potent uh, pagan symbol and uh, Gondawera, which was a, a demon found in the Zoroastrian Avesta. Um, so uh, that particular, I don't recall any other examples. I recall that example specifically because it was in one of my books. Um, but that particular, um, that particular article that I referenced has a list of these sort of, uh, mismatched, um, mashups of, of different names from that appear to have appeared in, uh, earlier sacred texts as also coming from contactees. I mean, if, even if you look at like, I mean, Ashtar and, and you know, Ashtar sure. and Astaroth, you know, it's, it's yeah, sort yeah, of the yeah. same, the same feel. Um, so I, I'm not denying that, like, again, you know, you know me, I, I try to like tread the line in between, uh, in between some of these things and people might accuse me of being a fence sitter, but I don't think anything that we're seeing in any of these categories is necessarily all one thing or another thing. I mean, I think that, it wouldn't surprise me in the least if if a good portion of demonic activity manifests itself as UFO phenomena. I mean, that's that's kind of that's kind of an axe I grind a little bit in in the brimstone deceit. Not a lot, but a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I just I just have a problem. I, I think it's a much more fitting uh, model to use a sort of animistic. Imagine me saying this sort of fey folk, you know, spirit, <laughs> uh, spirit ecology, grafting that sort of idea of a spirit ecology on this phenomena rather than saying that it's fitting into, you know, the, you know, never ending battle between good and evil. Well, one of the things that we that we've talked about before, I've talked about with you and with others, and I know you guys have talked about it on Where Do the Road Go, is this idea of interpretation, so how we interpret this phenomenon, how we interpret these experiences are important. So if someone interprets it as being evil, then, of course, they're probably going to call out to God or going to call out whatever God they worship. In this case, we're primarily talking about calling out to Jesus and then the experience stopping. Uh, if someone thinks that it's good, then that's not going to be an issue. I guess the thing is for me is like, are we dealing with, well, okay. I think really the thing is with Joe Jordan is that there is an absolutist approach to it. Like yeah, this, I, now, I now know that this, you know, yeah. this is what's going on, which it always sort of, you know, makes my toes curl a little bit. Right. Right. And, and, and same here somewhat, you know, it's like, um, you know, how can you be so absolutely sure that this is, that this is what's going on. You know, how, how can we be absolutely sure? Like, and I think that from listening to you and others, you know, I, I've come to the opinion that I really don't know, honestly, what, what is going on. It's just, I know that it is happening yet at the same time, there is a part of me that says that, well, being a Christian, like I can't discount it. I can't deny that that could be a possibility. Right. I mean, 
yeah, that's the thing. And I feel like I'm sort of being combative uh, towards another Christian. I just, I, I, I mean, this is, I consider myself sort of a, a walking example of cognitive dissonance because of the things that I talk about and the things that I'm interested in. Um, the things that I, the things that I say are definitive in my faith are very big picture things. I always, I've always found it very presumptuous to understand, to believe that even with a tool like the Bible, that we can understand exactly how reality in the world and our communion with that other world works. Um, you know, and I think it's, I do think it's foolish to say this existing evidence doesn't fit in with my current spiritual, uh, spiritual understanding. So therefore the evidence must be thrown out. Like you've got to reconcile, you've got to reconcile your faith with, um, the evidence at hand. And sometimes I think the best way to, to do that is to throw up your hands and say, I don't know, but this is happening. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, uh, I, 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 that was one of the other things that I, I mean, a skeptic believer, Christian atheist, I sort of found, puzzling is, is this sort of idea that, well, now I know that this is what's happening with these demons. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if you can completely say that. I did find it interesting. The, um, the discussion on the invocation of, um, of Christ during an abduction experience as stopping the experience, because you're right. There are people who have said similar things of other faiths. I was not aware of the data point that he uh, claims about, uh, permanently ending abductions. I do think that that is interesting. Um, but you know, part of me thinks. Part of me has to wonder. Uh, part of me has to wonder and take that take that statement apart because I think that the question is whether or not there is a sort of um, authority in using that name versus a power of your belief doing the doing the repelling in that case. Um, I I don't think it's power of belief because I've heard stories of atheists in various situations, near-death experiences, abductions, um, using the name of Christ and being able to end the event that they're embroiled in. Sure. Um, like I said, I've, I've heard, I've heard other, I've, I, I can't cite a single one of them, but I feel like I've heard examples of, of, you know, other spiritual figures being used to do the same thing. Now this, this other thing about it permanently ceasing the experience on one hand, I think, well, that sounds quite credible. On the other hand, I have to go, how longitudinal is a lot of abductee research? You know, I mean, how many of these people, I mean, I'm sure that he has stuck with people given his background, but like in all the cases where people have said that, have, has there really been follow-up to make sure that, that that doesn't happen again with them? You know, um, that's something that I, I, I found myself wondering. Well, again, to play devil's advocate a little bit, cause we talked about this, um, in episode 150, you know, when we were talking about the hostage to the devil film, and we were talking about how much does the faith influence the experience, but also influence like kind of like the vicious circle kind of thing. Like is the phenomenon being generated by the faith? In that case, we were talking about demonic possession and exorcism and whether there's a circle between the two, the exorcist, the, the possessed person and the exorcist whether that's some kind of symbiotic relationship. So in this case, is there, 
is the faith kind of influencing the viewpoint? Because it's so hard to kind of step out of it for me, especially because being a Christian, you know, I, I really can't, I like, I could try to step out of it, but only just a little bit, if you get what I'm saying. I mean, I think that the faith will always view, uh, influence the, influence the viewpoint. I mean, if you look at, if you look at any, any natural system, there's always this effort to maintain some sort of balance in terms of the distribution of heat or, you know, ideas of, of osmosis and whatnot. So I can't help but wonder if, if, um, there isn't, if, if there isn't an expectation of their needing to, you know, I mean, encountering a demon if you, if you're not encountering the divine, encountering a demon is a pretty profound spiritual experience because you mm-hmm. have confirmation of the one, so therefore you can flip it on the other side and have confirmation of the other. So right. yeah, I wonder. I, I wonder if sometimes if there isn't this desire to just encounter something that will reinforce that belief, even if it's a negative experience. Yeah, I think that's. I think it's a perfectly valid point. Yeah. Yeah. I I just I don't know. I just I guess it's just for me. It's like the fine line between being subject being i think being objective and being subjective yeah of course i i i'm of the of the idea that we can we can never really be objective right um right cuz um, in the end it's an experience that that you are having and when you tell someone about it they're going to put their own interpretations on it yeah, I, I think that I think that part of the reason that people don't want to engage with non-ETH ideas is because it is challenging to spirituality. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I you know there are there are plenty of Christians whose worldview would shatter if they thought that there might, heaven forbid, be some sort of third party involved besides God, the devil, and Satan. You know, it's this idea. It's this idea that you get a lot of pushback from Christians. Um, on the idea of synchronicity, because, you know, unless it's God doing the synchronicity, it implies that there is some sort of other external force that's sort of guiding you along. Now, I think it's sort of a myopic way of looking at it. You could see synchronicity as sort of an epiphenomena of the way that uh, the universe works, like God's will. It's just, it's just a byproduct of God's will as things unfold. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, I, I, I think that part of the reason that the ETH has gained so much traction is because it's sort of been, it's had its wagon hitched to this ascendance of 20th century scientism. And now as we sort of come out of that Mm -hmm. for, for better and worse, I will say as we're sort of coming out of that, I think you're seeing more reception to, to non ETH ideas. The most, I mean, it's, these ideas are being uh, received the warmest that I, I've seen in a long time. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I'll never forget two years ago, I was sitting down with a, a bandmate and I was talking to her and, and, uh, the question that you don't want anybody to ask you at two thirty in the morning when you're half in the bag, <laughs> one of the other bandmates, one of the other bandmates goes, so do you really believe in UFOs? I'm like, she's okay. Here we go. Cause I was hoping to go to bed sometime tonight. And, uh, she looked at me and goes, Oh, well it's all about consciousness. And I'm like, what? Um, so to hear that idea, and she, and she, this is not like a really hippie kind of person, but to hear those sort of ideas in the general public outside of these circles means that something is a, a toehold is being gained into looking at this in a more, uh, I mean, for lack of a better term, spiritual light. Yeah, yeah. 
And, and also, too, here's another thing that I wanted to ask you about was, you know, Joe Jordan's, I mean, he he takes, he seems to take things from when he begins with it, as he's telling the story, a kind of scientific approach, right? A kind of research approach. And this is, and he ends up coming to a conclusion that is, I guess, non-scientific and, and very spiritual in nature. So, you know, how do we rectify that, do you think? Well, I mean, to be honest, I think he, he was sort of following the data where it led sure. in a lot of ways, which right. is, again, one of the reasons that one of the reasons that I you know really have to admire him because he's he's embracing the sort of weirdness. Um, right. Um, I think that it's sort of an outgrowth of someone who is just inquisitive. I, I felt like the uh, I mean, I felt like the the sudden uh, pivot point that he made um both uh, spiritually and, and then again in terms of uh, refining that spiritual spirituality into Christianity, I felt like that was sort of uh, sort of glossed over a little bit. I would have loved to have heard about like what the the moment was or like what the period of life was in his time when he really thought that the new age might hold some water. And then you know the the switch from the, the sort of his sort of new age kind of beliefs into Christianity, I thought was really. Uh, quick too because it was interesting because i think you remember him saying that it was a christian who didn't walk the walk i think it was the one who talked to him about this yeah yeah that's what he said um, mm-hmm. so for someone to have had that sort of an effect on him was was quite was quite striking um and i would really love to like i would really love to hear why that resonated with him at that moment um you know i think so here here's here's the thing that i noticed in in my in my life i used to be terrified of alien abduction and we're, I mean, like we're talking about like pretty irrational, mm-hmm. like listening, like listening for things in the middle of the night and freaking myself out. But the moment that I realized that it most likely wasn't little green men, little green scientists mm-hmm. and that, it, that it possibly had some sort of other consciousness based spiritual, whatever it was something, it was something, it was something metaphysical. That for me personally gave me a toehold um, into possibly having a, a voice in the experience. You know, um, it, it meant that there was some sort of control, some sort of sovereignty of self that I could assert if something happened to me. And if you listen to to sort of his experience, it was very much a sort of similar reaction of I'm seeking a way to protect myself from this stuff. Um, that was sort of the the moment where he where he um, where, where, where he sort of found his found Christ is, is he was looking for, or he was hearing advice on how to protect himself from this. Cause he was like, Oh, I've got these, I've got all these crystals and this and that. So I wonder if perhaps it isn't, and I'm not saying this, you know, derogatorily, but I wonder if perhaps it wasn't some sort of, uh, you know, self preservation aspect that was kicking in a little bit as well. And again, well, again, as far like, as I, I'm, 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 yeah, sorry. as far as I know, it didn't ever really happen to him. He was just hearing it happen from others. Oh, right, right, right. But but it's never happened to me. But I was still terrified right. of it. Sure. and the fact that I, I found solace in the fact that maybe I have a say so in this experience. Um, and like I, anybody who's into this for long enough starts to has these thoughts of like, what if it happens to me? So like, no, I, I know that it didn't happen to him, but I still think that maybe there might be, have been that sort of extra layer of 
seeking out an extra layer of protection, but or an extra barrier between him yeah. and it. That might that might have that might have really appealed to him in that moment. And again, I'm I'm I'm, I'm like I'm I'm eighty percent on board with a lot of what he's saying, and I'm very I'm very happy as a Christian that he's he's found Christ. Um, but uh, you know, I, I wonder if perhaps that might have had a little bit of a, a motive in there as well. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I could definitely see that because of my own exp- my own experience. You know, like I, I can I hear you. Like I can remember reading Communion when I was probably like twelve, thirteen years old, and being like frightened as frightened by it. You know, frightened of the whole concept of this little figure peeking its head around the door and crap like that. And then, like I myself, once I found out that there was probably a lot more to this experience. And that it wouldn't necessarily happen to me because it's not physical. Then I was like, okay, sigh of relief. You know, it's not gonna, <laughs> it's not gonna happen. And it's not like something that I, I sit around and I fear. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's way down there on the list of things to fear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, of course, of course, you know, this means that we're most likely abductees because we have this fear, right? Well, if it happened to me now, I'd probably be like, "What the hell's going on?" Like, what, yeah. you know, <laughs> just call, call, call them out for call them out for call them out. You know, yeah. I was about to say something, but I, I realize that this is not a uh, necessarily a cursing friendly cast. So, <laughs> call them out for their call. Just call them out for their uh, their having the chutzpah. How about that? Yeah, yeah. Like, what what are you doing? Well, I mean, I told you, I think, um, like something that I remember happening to me. I remember. Like what I like I said, I mean I remember reading communion. You there, Josh? Yes, sorry. Okay, okay. Just everything went quiet. I was like, I thought they took you away for a second there. <laughs> but uh I can remember I remember reading it. And I remember getting it so into it that when I was about thirteen, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and like actual the door was open after I had closed it. And like, there's a figure standing in the doorway. Like, I remember this. And I can remember falling back to sleep. And for the longest time, I kind of pushed it. First, I pushed it into the back of my mind. Like, I didn't really want to think about that. And I think for the longest time, I thought to myself, well, what if something really did happen? What if I'm an abductee? You know, all this kind of stuff going around in your mind. And nothing else, nothing else happened after that. And nothing has happened since. And now that I look back on it, I think, you know, me reading that just kind of influenced my brain. And that could have been a dream where it was just on my mind and my brain was processing that. Or it could have been something telling me like, hey, we're watching. You know what I mean? But something that's not physical, as I believe now, because it really did feel like a dream. And I had a ghost experience that was the same way, honestly. So, you know, it's like you're dealing with the same phenomenon, really. Yeah, I mean, and I think that I think that we dismiss the way that these things interact and communi- communicate with us far too often. I think yeah. that I think that there's a lot more strange stuff in our lives that happens that we don't. I mean, of course, some of it's coincidence, but like, how many times do you think you've seen you saw something, and you look and you find an explanation, and it doesn't happen again, and you write it off. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder sometimes if those weren't really something that you just found an easy ex- found an easy out for. Now, of course, sometimes yes, it is Venus in the sky. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, other times I wonder if it's just this one-off thing 
we're not we're not wired to put too much stock in it if it happens once. You know, like I thought I saw something in the corner of my eye that looked like a little kid. Oh well, it's nothing. Yeah, Didn't I, happen again. I, I had that you experience know? one time. I was working at uh, the college bookstore, and like at night, like for two hours at night, we would be open just like the little uh, convenience store area. And so I'm sitting there, and I just see this thing like run at the out of the corner of my eye, and I'm like, "What the hell was that?" And like I've never had that experience again, but I think about that sometimes. Like, would I actually see that, or was that just was that my my eye? Was I tired? I mean, like, it's just it was a weird experience. I was uh, going to the bank one day, and I was walking from my car to the to the actual to the to the door of the bank, and there was a piece of gravel that just fell out of the sky right in front of me. Really? And I want to say that it was weird, but I mean, maybe I, maybe I kicked it. Maybe, you know, maybe uh, it was stuck in a bird's claw or something or, or was stuck to a, a rabbit that the, that a hawk had gotten or something. Mm-hmm. But but it was weird. And it was one of those things that I think is a sort of a good example in terms of uh, in terms of something that is easy to write off that could have been could have been a straight up Charles Fort anomalous fall from the sky for all I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, 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 there wasn't any other loose gravel that, and it seemed, I didn't see the entire arc of it, but I saw like the last, uh, probably 18 inches of it. And it looked like it was coming straight down. So I I think, I wonder if that's not something that we, that we deal with much more often than we realize. And, you know, I also think that some of us are just, this is a term that, uh, Miguel Romero used in, in relating it to, uh, the Persinger god helmet but maybe some of us are just god death you know as as chilling as that is an idea yeah. for me um you know i think that some of us are just more receptive to this like people are tone deaf maybe we're just other death you know or we go through these periods in our lives when we're more in touch with that and then for whatever reason it fades out yeah i mean for some reason for me uh, i really have nothing past the uh, like past the age of 13 there's nothing like there's no other weird experiences but when I was a kid, I can think of a, like of a handful. Yeah, I mean i I have been uh, I have been sort of I, I'm kind of in, living in an unenchanted world right now, and I'm looking to cap- capture a little bit of that again. Um, I had a period of time in late col- late late undergrad, early grad school, um, where I ran into some really weird stuff. And then since then, of course I haven't really sought it, sought it out much, but since then a lot of that's just sort of dried up for me. Um, and I'm looking to sort of get a kick in the pants and have something weird happen to me again, but not too weird because like, you know, I, <laughs> I think, I think that there are plenty of, plenty of very easy ways to have st- weird stuff happen to you, but I don't, I don't want to make the sacrifice of having my entire life turned upside down. Not, uh, not, losing, losing my, losing my house and my wife and my finances and you know everything else. Not Soraya level weird. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that guy has so many weird experiences. It's ridiculous. Was there anything else, Josh, that you, uh, from that interview that uh, particularly struck you? No, those, those are my takeaways. And like, I, I suppose the thing that I would lobby for is, you know, I have, I have lobbied for with Christians in my own life is sort of looking at the possibility of there being again this ecosystem of of entities possibly rather than mm-hmm. just good or evil like this idea that there are things in between um you know not, not 
in you know not not necessarily because I, I I I can feel it in 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 the vibe of the community right now. I'm getting known as like the therefore fairies guy, <laughs> and I and I I, I what I what I, what I want to try to stress is that whatever the 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 little people legends around the world, whatever they're describing, whatever that is, if it's elementals, if it is, maybe they're describing aliens for all I know, whatever it is, it's the same thing as is been happening with UFOs. I'm pretty, pretty certain of that by and large. Um, and so whatever that's describing, it may not be literally be like, I don't, who knows? It may be literal tiny people and maybe elemental spirits. It may whatever that's describing. That's, that's a big chunk of what's going on. Um, well, it's, so when, when I talk about this ecosystemic idea of, of 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 spirits, it sort of sounds like I'm going down that fairy fairy route, but not necessarily. I mean, I just I, I think that we should embrace the ambiguity rather than trying to to, to put stuff into boxes. Sure, and you know, I, I, it's interesting that you say that because I was I was talking about it on that show, and that one of the first things that kind of I, I hate to say got me away from the viewpoint of that it's all demonic. But I guess in a sense that it did was like I was thinking to myself, you know, what if you, what if we're dealing with good and evil and they manifest in the same ways? And also, what if we're dealing with neutral? What if we're dealing with something that just doesn't give a damn about us, you know, as well? Uh, or, or if we or if we graft a context onto these things, sure. like, you know, something shows up neutral and then whatever is happened in our life or whatever's happened to us that day or whatever our emotional state is tips it to one side or the other. Right. And, and interestingly enough, the good, the bad, the neutral, that's how gin are usually described as well, because there's good gin, there's bad gin, and then there's ones that just don't care. So, right. you know, so there, so there is some validity to that, to that thought. And Josh, um, I want to thank you for coming on and talking about this. This is, I think this has been really good. Uh, Cause I really like the, one of the things that we like to do on this show is to try to get differing kind of viewpoints. And I just thought that like, there should, I was like, there could, there should be some little bit of a response to that. Uh, Cause I know that there's probably some people that are going to listen to this and to that episode. And they're going to say, you know, amen. I agree hundred percent. And then there's going to be people that are going to say, no way that guy's wrong. <laughs> And then they're the they're the ETHers who are still mad at this podcast. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I don't know if they even listen, but uh, uh, there are some, I think. But yeah, so you know, so that's just what I want to do is to try to get like a differing opinion, and not that your opinion differs too much, but I think that it, I think that there are subtleties and there are areas of gray in anything, and especially in this experience. Yeah, well, it's. I mean, it's an absolute pleasure. It was a great interview. Um, I, like I said, I'm. I'm very, for the most part, positive on it. Um, I just think that, you know, there's always room for more nuance. You know, there's never, 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 no such thing as too much nuance in anything that you do in life. Sure, absolutely. Uh, Rob, Rob, was there anything that you wanted to say or ask or uh, other than just to thank Josh for coming on again? Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, absolute pleasure, guys. Keep on kicking butt because this is one of my. You know, there's, I'm subscribed to like 20 podcasts, and I try to listen to most of them, actually, because I'm in the car so much. But whenever uh, Radio Mysterioso or uh, Conspiranormal pops up, goes right to the top. Hey, so. that's that's good company right there. You're going to have to yeah. tell Greg Bishop that. Um, so, uh, but just real quick, Josh, what are you working on now? Um, I am... 
wrapping up really soon. <laughs> um, uh, research for my third book, uh, which is about uh, paranormal child abduction from fae folklore all the way through modern alien abduction. Um, and I thought that it would be kind of a, sh- a shorter book and there wouldn't be that much material, but there's a ton of material on it. Um, but, uh, you know, I sort of – so it's – I approach it because, A, it's not this sort of survey and analysis that I've done for the past two books. The format's going to be a little bit different. Um, but, B, you know, it, the whole hybrid um, – alien hybrid program is something that I talk about a lot and I hadn't really sunk my teeth into as much as I should. So this is going to be Joshua Cutchin's stance on alien hybrids. Um, it's going to be a big chunk of it. Man, I'm so, looking, I'm uh, looking forward to to the reading that and talking to you about that. Well, I'm 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 excited. It's it's going to be daunting, but it's going to be worth it. So it's probably going to come out sometime next year. Is Red Pill part of that? Uh, a part of the book? Yeah. Uh, no, I mean he's he's thrown some some leads my way, but uh, okay. I mean, and he'll he'll uh, he, generally what he does, what he's done for the past two books is he's uh, helped me with some proofreading and pointing out things because even in his second language, he's a better thinker than I am. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Josh. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Stay on the line for us, Rob. Uh, tell everybody where they can where they can uh, join us, join up to become a Patreon. Yeah, you can uh, sign up at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal and join our growing community there. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Uh, everything from joining the forums to our bonus episodes to free t-shirts. And uh, once again, thanks to everybody who's already signed up. We really appreciate you guys a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody. Uh, We'll be back with uh, Mike Suave, talk about John Teeter, the time traveler on Conspiranormal. What if I were to tell you that the forms are not the facts? And what if I were to ask you the shape of water? Water is in a state of constant flow and flux, a paradox of weakness and strength. My name is Aaron David. And I am host of Charm the Water, a weekly podcast centering on the occult and mysticism based in Asheville, North Carolina. You can find us at charmthewater.com or iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, your favorite pod feeder. Come holler. All right, guys, we are back on Conspira Normal, and we have the guest on the line. The Actually, I guess the second guest, but the main guest of the show. And that is uh, Mr. Mike Suave. And Mike, I heard you on Where Did the Road Go, like I told you before, and talking about the John Teeter legend. And this is something that um, has always fascinated me since I heard about it, probably in about I want to say 2004, 2005, and I guess that I heard about it probably on Coast to Coast way back in the day. Um, And it's just one of those like kind of like internet legends that just doesn't seem to want to go away. So I kind of want to get started on kind of like the basics of the story, but also first how you kind of got interested in this. Yeah, similar to you, uh, it was one of those nights where I'm just uh, going down the rabbit hole on YouTube and, uh, you know, watching increasingly weird stuff. <laughs> and uh, before you know it, I was listening to a Coast to Coast episode on John Teeter. And as I was listening to it, I was Googling stuff and I was seeing the some of the images and I was seeing um, – I was reading the posts and I was thinking – I was pretty uh, – you know, with so many of these topics, there, 
they just don't have they don't hold up right you start looking into them and then you sort of get this moment of kind of doubt where you're like okay this is this is dubious but it it didn't really come across that way it seemed like it was there was a lot of at the very least i knew a lot of work and effort had uh, gone into it and that's what i eventually uh, wanted to do with the book because there's been a been books written one book written arguing john teeter's a real-time traveler i kind of wanted to look at the um the people that surround the story and who may have written the story so that was um that was my intention. So let's talk about who John Teeter claimed to be and kind of the story. Like what's the kind of the basics of the story? Like how does this start? Yeah. So in uh, towards the end of 2000, he comes on uh, two message boards, uh, Art Bell's um, post-to-post message board, another one called the Time Travel Institute. And he introduces himself as a time traveler from the year 2036. And he says that uh, his mission was he'd been sent back to 1975 to retrieve an IBM 5100 computer that was needed in uh, in the future in his his 2036 to uh, translate between Unix, APL, and BASIC. And um, what separates John from you know just your average uh, crank on the internet claiming to be a time traveler? <laughs> was uh, the depth and um, realism of his story. The people on these message boards were naturally into time travel, and some of them were had physics background, and some of them knew a lot about the philosophy of time travel. And time and again, they'd asked him these questions, and he would respond with a real high level of sophistication. So at the very least, it's you know an intelli- a very intelligent person or a team of really intelligent people uh, who are coming up with these responses. And I always encourage people, you know, a lot of people might um, – you know, they read an article about John Teeter or they go to Wikipedia. I'd encourage people to read the post themselves because it's almost like reading uh, like a good time travel novel in itself. So what was the purpose of him? Tra- he was traveling back in time from 2036 to 1975. So why did he need this old computer? What was the purpose of that? Yeah, like he's like I had mentioned, he said that. So apparently, Unix uh, really is going to time out at a certain uh, point in the future, and so that that was why. And he also claimed that. Uh, so John's uh, s- style of time travel, if you will, it's not like uh, Back to the Future time travel, where you go back into the past, you make a change, and then you go back to your present, and everything's different. He, the time travel he's talking about, is more in line with uh, the sort of. Uh, quantum reality that's becoming increasingly mainstream today. So in in his uh, version of time travel, he goes to this other world line and goes back to his and nothing will be different. So the the whole purpose of time travel is to retrieve artifacts essentially. And so, you know, that it's a, it's a bit of a sticking point. Why is this, if you know, you can invent time travel, but you can't invent a uh, computer that can emulate between uh, Unix, APL and basic. It's a little strange, but one of the really interesting things about the IBM 5100 is um, nobody at that time or very few people at the time John was posting knew that it had that capability. And it was only years later that um, people started looking into it and started talking to the engineers uh, involved with the IBM 5100. And they said, yeah, it could do that. And the reason IBM didn't promote it was because if people knew that that computer uh, had the ability to um, operate in those three languages, then they would have only had to buy one computer instead of three. So it was sort of a trade secret that IBM didn't want out there. So John, that's just one little bit of 
rarefied information that John seemed to possess. So if you want to look at it from the vantage point that the John Teeter story is fiction, then maybe whoever came up with this had these details. And then they said, hey, here's the sort of kernel that's going to give this story more of a, of a truthfulness than if we just you know make it all up out of whole cloth. Sure. Give it, give it that like realm of, unbelie- of believability. Mm-hmm. Because they have this exclusive information, right? And that's what's so um, fascinating about the post is a lot of the things that, for people who believe John Teeter is real, the uh, points that validate the story didn't come out until years later and are in some ways still continuing to emerge even now. Now, he said that he got to go back to 1975, <laughs> get this computer, and then I just want to make sure I understand this right. So he goes back to 2036. It's within his own timeline. And like yeah, almost this, like a parallel universe to ours. This And this confuses me, and this is where it gets uh, very complicated. But right. He, he basically says he, he couldn't – you can never get back to an exact um, world line. So the world line he was going back to was not going to be – his exact one, but the amount of what John referred to as divergence would be so limited that it would be arbitrary. And that's uh-huh. another I- interesting thing, and it's sort of an out for uh, people that are uh, John Teeter believers, is that he described our world line, the one he was um, visiting in, in 2000, as having a uh, 2% divergence. Therefore, anything he predicted, while likely to happen, was not guaranteed to happen. So that kind of gives him an out for the things that right. predictions he made that didn't end up happening. Right. Well, let's talk about some of those predictions. Now, what did he predict was going what what basically happened in his timeline all the way leading up to 2036? Yeah, um this is another part of the story I really enjoy because it, it's he weaves this very rich rich tale. So he describes uh, U.S. Civil War, the uh, beginnings of it uh, start around 2004, and he de- he describes it as not a conflict between states, but rather a conflict between essentially the left and the right. And it's interesting looking back, uh, you know, in retrospect, I listen to uh, radio interviews or podcasts, 2004, 2008, every time John Teeter enthusiast thought, oh, well, this was the Civil War he's talking about, you know, with uh, – Bush's uh, second term and then with Obama's first term, this is the civil war. It's never, there's never been more conflict between the left and the right. And it just keeps increasing and increasing. So, um, yeah. So he says the civil war, um, divides the, uh, United States into, um, essentially the rural areas, um, form militias and they're fighting against the, um, uh, the American federal empire, which would be the big cities. And then, uh, it gets worse because, uh, Russia, uh, nukes the American federal empire. And uh, so there's nuclear war. And uh, I believe that was around 2000. Uh, I think it was like 15, 2015 yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah. 2015. And then, um, yeah, so this nuclear war occurs and everyone goes back to um, sort of traditional living, right? Like uh, you rely on your neighbor and there's no, um, there's, there's still uh internet, but there's not, you know, mass production. And, you know, uh, one of the things John was very concerned about was um, food. Uh, he wouldn't eat any food that uh, he couldn't trace the origins of. Uh, he said there was a, uh, there was a massive um, uh, Kreutzfeldt Jakob uh, outbreak, which is essentially the human uh, version of mad cow disease. So, um, yeah, so things were not good in uh, John's future. And yet, 
or John's present, I guess. And yet, uh, John prefers that time because he says, you know, those those traumas that everyone went through were like a cleansing where he was very disdainful of the way people were living their lives in 2000. He thought, Mm -hmm. you know, they were vapid. They were, people kept asking him sports questions and, you know, who's going to win the world series next year. And John just, it wasn't on his radar, right? He's like, I've been, you know, I was in a shotgun infantry when I was 13 years old. I don't care who won the super bowl. Right. So, uh, yeah, John, that's, uh, some of the story uh, John John told anyways, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, the theory I, I like is that there's a team involved in this story and that the team involves some science people, but it also involves someone who's a writer, uh, maybe a science fiction writer who uh, was able to uh, come up with some of these elements because it's interesting in uh, a chapter of the book I have, uh, it's called Pre-Existing Influences. I talk about some of the uh, cultural artifacts that existed prior to John's story that share elements of John's story. And there's a book uh, by a guy named Pat Frank called Alas Babylon. And mm-hmm. some, but not all, of the uh, plot lines in Alas Babylon, there's some minor overlaps with uh, John's John's story. There was also, you mentioned, I was going to mention this later, but you do mention a similarity in the timeline. The events are similar to a, like a, like this kind of uh, Dungeons and Dragons style type game. Yeah, that's just another. Um, I think it was. Uh, yeah, Rob. Uh, I'm blanking on his last name, but he wrote it for uh, Strategic Brains, I think. And he he found that, and there was, yeah, there was a few. Not everything wasn't perfect, but it sure. had a civil war around the same time, and there were there were some overlapping elements there. So if if you think of a team of people coming up with this. Who knows if that's something they wanted to directly lift or if maybe something that just influenced them subconsciously, maybe? Yeah, I think it was called like GURP Cyber World or something like yeah, that. Yeah, GURP Cyber World. <laughs> it's a strange ever, name. You ever play it? Uh, no, no, I, I have no idea of it. Not until I read your book, what it was, what it was even, it, what it even was. So, yeah. Uh, well, I want to talk. How does he say that time travel? becomes possible because you have this world that is seemingly in so well he only talks about the united states but you have a world that's seemingly in chaos but yet they're able to send people back in time yeah this was another one of the areas that uh for me anyways lends the story a lot of validity because he basically said that cern was going to uh, develop mini black holes that could be harnessed uh in a you know a a time travel unit, essentially. He called his time travel unit the uh, General Electric Temporal Displacement Unit. So if you want to invest in a company, you know, General Electric's still <laughs> going to be around in 2036. But um, the interesting thing about this is, you know, now CERN is pretty, you know, I don't know about your Facebook feed, but I see some crazy, you know, CERN opened the portals to hell like right, every other day, right? right. So mm-hmm. not only is it around in those circles, but if you open the science section of uh, the New York Times or The Guardian, they're going to be talking about what's going on at CERN, too. People are very familiar with the Large Hadron Collider. But in 2000, it was they were building the Large Hadron Collider, but it was something essentially, you know, some nerds at MIT were talking about, but the average person on the internet was not talking about CERN, right? So John was – that's another place where John was ahead of the curve by saying that the technology that would develop time travel was invented at CERN. Right. And there was also this weird thing about, so again, like he goes from 2036 to 1975 
and then he ends up in 2000. But then at a certain point, he also goes back to 1998, and he's actually living with his past self with his parents. Yeah, he was living with his past self in 2000 as well. And um, he talks about uh, – somebody asks him about you know like what happens when you meet your alternate self or whatever, and they reference the uh, – Jean-Claude Van Damme movie Time Cop, where I think <laughs> so, somebody explodes or something when they uh, meet their past self. <laughs> so John says that won't happen. And he actually says the fact that we even think that reflects poorly on us because it says something about, you know, maybe we have this guilt or shame where we can't, you know, uh, can't meet our uh, past self like that. But yeah, John's um, uh, other John, I guess you want to call him, was uh, three years old. And um, John's mother talks about how you know, John would tease his father about some of the things they would they were doing uh, in raising John that, you know, would later manifest in the older John's personality being the way it was. So, yeah, that's just one more little detail of the story that makes it that much more kind of rich and interesting. There's a lot of good details about his life with his parents. He talks about um, uh, they're driving along the highway and they see someone uh, pulled over. Uh, side of the road, their car's broken down and they have a gas can and those parents just don't think about it. They just drive by. And John can't understand this because in 2036, you know, it's gone back to sort of communal living and the idea of just, you know, leaving someone stranded out there, just, it mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't make any sense to him. Similarly, he, uh, there's a moment that John's mother talks about where um, I think he starts crying in a grocery store because he's never seen so much abundant food in one place. Hmm. Kind of like a person from like a third world country would, you know. Mm-hmm. The um, there's is there any proof? Has anybody ever tried to like find these people to see if they actually exist? Yeah. Um, so essentially, this will maybe uh, allow us to introduce Larry Haber, which we'll, who we'll get into in more detail later, I'm sure, but. Uh, Larry uh, claims to represent or claimed uh, past tense to represent uh, Kate Teeter, and he was sort of the go-between. So if you had a question for her, he could pass it along to her. And there was a coast-to-coast episode where he acted as go-between where George Nouri asked questions. He relayed them to Kay, and then he answered them. So huh. it, brings, it brings up all these questions. Is there a Kay Teeter? You know, and one thing I always point out is that um, John Teeter was a, a synonym. He said that. So the woman, this woman, Kay Teeter, would not be named Kay Teeter. It would be Kay, whatever his real name was. So you can't just look her up in a phone book. Right. Which also brings to mind that uh, Teeter is a very rare name. If you look for – it's it's almost non-existent as a last name. If you try to find people named Teeter, there just aren't very many. So it's a good choice as a uh... – that's probably a pseudonym then, because then you're not gonna, not gonna probably probably gonna find that person. Uh, so let's talk about Larry Haber, because this yep. is a good this is a good place because he you know as you said he claims to be I guess that he still to this day claims to be the lawyer for this uh, this supposed family. Yeah, actually that changed uh, recently. Uh, he was on Jimmy Church and he told uh, Jimmy Church that the family had uh, dismissed him eight months uh, uh, prior to his appearance. And then that was interesting to me because uh, like a week before that interview, Larry was still answering my questions as though he were still 
the lawyer for the family, and he never mentioned that. So it's a little curious that he would just kind of suddenly claim he's no longer representing the family. But yeah, Larry's involvement is pretty much the driving force in the story after the posts, because the posts are their own sort of separate artifact that are always going to be there. But then the one person who's who's driven the story is Larry, because Things have come out uh, since then. There was a YouTube upload that uh, Larry claims he was instructed to upload by Kay. And it is essentially uh, a description of how all these John Teeters have been coming back and they're getting lost on various world lines. And so it includes some coordinates and it also uh, tells us that the more we discuss John Teeter, the more more sort of signposts there'll be for these various Johns coming back to find their way back. So, uh, and just to get into, yeah. So, and just to get into Larry's uh, personality a little bit, um, the thing that makes Larry so interesting is he's not one of these guys, uh, who's, you know, just out there looking for this publicity. I mean, he's, he's, uh, established, he does contract law. Uh, he does, he works for, He's done contract law for Disney, Universal Studios. I'm his friend on Facebook. He looks like he lives, you know, nice family life, good professional. And it always strikes me as strange that this guy who, you know, is totally credible would – he just doesn't strike me as the guy who would make up a fake client uh, and risk his reputation in that way. And yet it's very hard to reconcile that he's – that he's, you know, if, if he's not making it up, then there's two possibilities. There's John Teeter is real or mm-hmm. some separate group has made up the John Teeter story and they've hired Larry unwittingly to give it an added layer of, of realism. So you and I come up with a story and then we hire Larry through a third party. Uh, and so he goes out and he makes these appearances and who could who could sell it more than someone who's not actually in on it, right? So he doesn't know that the person that he's communicating with is not this K teeter, but it's somebody else. Yeah. So he has di- no idea. So it's like plausible deniability. Yeah. There's a number of different permutations. And, um, he says that K was introduced to him by a law school, a colleague of his who he hadn't seen since law school. And he's only ever spoken to her on the phone and via email. So could be anyone, right? Anyone with a woman's voice, essentially. Right. Well, then this then another question arises. Then why him? Why particularly him? What would make him? Uh, what would make them interested in him to continue this story? Yeah, I, it it um it gets to the point of again. You go back to that colleague who um, Larry does do entertainment. Uh, the contracts he does are often in entertainment law, so. The official story from Larry is essentially Kate Teeter goes to this other attorney who practices a different uh, variety of law, and Larry just happens to be the closest thing to an entertainment lawyer that this guy knows, so it falls into Larry's lap. Mm-hmm. Now, the alternative is that um, a lot of people have concluded – there was an uh, Italian um, documentary made. It was called Voyager, and they came to the conclusion that it was Larry's – Larry has two brothers of interest, uh, Maury and uh, uh, Richard Haber, and both of them are involved uh, – Maury is involved in cybersecurity, and uh, Richard is basically an IT guy. And uh, so the thinking is, okay, these guys have a background in um, – 
computers, so they might have uh, been responsible for coming up with this story. And recently, um, uh, some of the people that I talk with uh, John Teeter about, uh, one of them, not sure if he'd want me to use his name or not, but uh, he found that Maury actually uh, worked for a uh, computer company called uh, CA, which was involved with um, uh, developing software for early well, not early, but like IBM infrastructure in the in the eighties and nineties. So it's possible that Maury mm-hmm. could have come across that fifty one hundred information uh, while working at CA, mm-hmm. or know someone that that told him about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what I right, mean. right. Yeah, that's yeah. There, it, you know, when you mentioned about the multiple Johns, and we're going to get to this aspect. But when you mentioned the multiple Johns that, you know, you had to, what did you, what did you say that the people had to do to help him, to help the multiple John Teeters? Well, there are two things. One, there's a website, uh, the John Teeter Foundation website is just a static page that's been up there forever and, uh, or since this was posted. And it's like a, a little uh, chart, like an Excel chart, and it just shows numbers of world lines and then divergence numbers. So there's that. But then in the message, it's basically saying, uh, yeah, we need to talk about John Teeter. We need to write things about him on the internet. We need to okay. post about him, which is a little suspicious because, you know, one of the theories always is that somebody came up with this story to sell a movie, right, or or make some money. And so it's a little suspicious that the only communique from John after the post is saying, hey, don't don't stop talking about me, guys, right? We need to keep this out there. So that's a little bit strange. Well, first of all, it sounds like something that you would see now all the time, which is kind of like the, uh, the viral marketing campaign. You see uh-huh. this now a lot. Uh, back in that time, you really didn't see it. But it also sounds like a game. Yeah, and that's one of the... Um one of the aspects of uh, the story is that it's a lot like an alternate uh, reality game, except no one's 100% sure whether it's a game or not, which makes it, uh, for my money, a lot more fun. Because, you know, when you're playing an alternate reality game, you know it's a game, essentially, right? And you know you're pretending. And so, to me, some people like that. To me, it just isn't that fun. It just seems a little bit silly, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't, I don't know. I write fiction. That's maybe how I get my creativity out some people might like doing that but the thing that makes john teeter uh so much more fun for me is this slight possibility no matter how slight is that maybe it's not a because it's it hasn't been concretely disproven and the thing is uh, you know you're talking about the viral marketing and you know i'm trying to think of some examples but some of these creepy things that happen and everyone you know on 4chan starts looking into them and it's fun and then oh it's for a movie and then it's just it's over and it's no fun anymore right Right. there's a strange creature in the woods we have footage of it and it ends up being something for a video game yeah and then it's everyone's disappointed because everybody i think and i think that's what draws people to the john teeter story and draws people to just you know 40 and topics in general is that people want to believe that there's supernatural things beyond our, you know, uh, scientific understanding, I guess. So that's why that's kind of what keeps me into it. Like for me, there's two aspects because I can have as much fun uh, hashing out is John Teeter real as I can have. Maybe it's because I have a background in journalism, but I like looking into like <laughs> you know Larry Haber's life and his brother's life and stuff. Like that's fun for me too, right? So I kind of and people have actually uh, accused me of sitting on the fence like i'm supposed to say one or the other right i'm supposed to 
Yeah. I'm supposed to say John Teeter's real or I'm supposed to say John Teeter's fake. And, you know, th- there's enough people that do that, right? There's a guy called uh, Temporal Recon who wrote the uh, John Teeter's Real Manifesto called uh, Conviction of a Time Traveler. And there's a guy called Rasmus or the Hoax Hunter who uh, is like his life's work is debunking the John Teeter story. And it, I, it's interesting because both of them are equally, you know, uh, intolerant of people that that disagree with them, right? They think I've proven it, so I don't really need to listen to anybody that's that's arguing with me, essentially. So I prefer my stance is that a I enjoy both sides, and I, if something definitive comes out, I'm not going to you know pull the wool over my eyes. I'll be okay. First of all, if something definitive comes out to prove John Teeter is a real time traveler, nobody's going to be happier than me because that's fantastic, <laughs> right? Sure. Like that's what could be more exciting. And then if you know, somebody proves concretely this person did it because there's a ton of circumstantial evidence as to who might have done it. And we haven't even gotten into, we've talked about Larry, but we haven't gotten into the other suspects yet. But it's just circumstantial evidence, right? Just as the evidence that he's a real-time traveler is also circumstantial. So as much as, you know, the Rasmus, the hoax hunter, will title his video, you know, smoking gun, there isn't the smoking gun yet, right? People have come forward to say they did it. Uh, people have done, you know, like that Rasmus, he makes like two hour YouTube videos. So he's doing a lot of work. And, uh, but yet there's nothing that, uh, just, you know, puts it to bed essentially. And so that was kind of my goal with the book was to bring together all this information about all these people involved in one place so that people, if you're interested in the John Teeter story, you don't have to go, you know, to pair like old paranormalis threads to find every little piece of information, right? Just put it all in one place for people. Well, let's talk about some of these people that are, that you believe are behind it, uh, Mm -hmm. that could be behind it. Uh, The first one that stands out and stood out very much to me is this Joseph Matheny guy. Now, I'm not familiar with the whole alternative reality gaming thing. I'm just, it's not something that I'm familiar with. But apparently this guy is pretty famous in that world. Yeah, he's essentially the like in in many respects the the guy who started it all. He uh, is responsible for a game or uh, you can think of it almost as like a literary work as well. It's called uh, Ong's Hat essentially or it came to be known as Ong's Hat. And essentially it's um it started on these um alt uh message boards and uh it involved uh supernatural things going on in New Jersey. And it was the, there's an academic book written about it called legend tripping online. And this idea of legend tripping is, so you and I are, are posting on this message board and we're talking about this stuff going on in New Jersey. And then we go out to some location and we, and then we write about it. But beyond that people, what makes it interesting is that people were advancing the story and taking it in different directions. So I, you were, I could add to, this story. And essentially, the John Teeter story functions in the exact same way. Like, if you want to look at the John Teeter story as an alternative reality game, you could say Larry Haber is a player in the game, whether he knows it or not. Uh, I'm a player in the game because I've collated this information in my book. Temporal Recon's a player in the game because he wrote a book and he, you know, uh, professes a certain view and he puts new information out there. So, but yeah, just to get into Matheny's background a little more, he's also, 
he has a tech background at uh, Netscape and Adobe, and he holds a number of patents. And he does um, he does he's an academic as well, so he's not just some you know character. And uh, he appeared on a podcast, uh, Project Archivist. And claim to be responsible for the story. And yeah, uh, I, I know those guys. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. And um, he, yeah, claims to be responsible for the story. And immediately, I felt um, while he had definitely all the credentials to be behind the story, I felt like he wasn't. If if he was, and he wanted to come forward and and take credit for it, he p- could have offered more concrete proof because. He, he doesn't really offer any concrete proof. And beyond that, he's somewhat dismissive of the story. Uh, like he'll say, for example, oh, John Teeter sounds like John Connor from uh, The Terminator. I thought everyone would get that. How, how are people so dumb? And uh, he's also very adversarial towards uh, Larry Haber. He talks about how – so Matheny with uh, these four colleagues of his who are in the uh, film industry – can't come up with the story, and they and the whole idea, according to him, was that none of them would ever come forward to take credit for it. He said that was the problem with Ong's hat was that they could connect it to him, so you know you could take away the reality of it that way. So the, these four people, they said, we're never going to take credit, and we're never going to try and make any money. And then one day, this Larry Haber arrives, and something I didn't mention about Larry Haber. Uh, at the behest of Kay, he published a book called uh, John Teeter, A Time Traveler's Tale, which is essentially just the post, which you can get free online, but published in book form and with some introductory notes by Kay. So he publishes this book, and according to Joseph Matheny, Joseph Matheny is not too happy about this because you know, he, he knows Larry if, – if what Joseph Matheny is saying is true, then Larry Haber is a liar. Right, so he said, claims that he uh, told uh, Larry Haber, "Look, you get that book off of Amazon, or I'm going to expose you." And the book mm. did disappear from Amazon at a certain point in time, and that's why now it goes for hundreds of dollars. I think it was going for over eight hundred dollars recently, just wow. because it's out of print and people are fascinated by John Teeter. <laughs> you know, could there be a possibility that these two guys had a falling out at a certain point? Yeah, there's towards the end of the book, I I discuss the different permutations of potential um, Haber Matheny involvement, and there's several. There's this idea that you know um, they are in it together, and Matheny says Matheny at one point called Haber a quote gut maggot. So uh, not not mincing any words, but that could be a ruse, right? They're yeah. in it together, so I'm going to call you a gut maggot, and people are going to think we're not in it together. Or Matheny, like I was saying earlier, hires Haber through a third party. Or Matheny really did come up with this story, and Haber is just an opportunist who jumped on top of it. So there's different – and the, the, there seems to be two kind of competing narratives as to who's behind it. There there's, tends to be the thought that it's either Joseph Matheny and then these four people, and then there's a the whole um, – cottage industry of speculation as to who those people are it's either his camp or it's larry haber and his brothers there's not a lot of idea that the two intersect and it's really interesting because like i said Matheny came on that podcast he drops this bombshell on everybody and then he never talks about john teeter again it's the last word well he did uh, he did a email interview for my book but other than that that was the last word on john teeter i was really expecting him to um 
maybe contact me once the book was out because he was a little bit um, prickly. He didn't like some of my questions, but he did answer mm-hmm. them. And I was expecting maybe once the book come out, he'd uh, have something to say. But yeah, he just just like that, he's you know washed his hands of John Teeter. But it's still right there on his website. Like you go to Joseph uh, Matheny's website, and again, this is a guy who's accomplished a lot of things. And one of the first things you see is a link to that Project Archivist interview. So it's something he wants out there. And uh, the the other thing I'd like to say about uh, Matheny is um, in that academic book about him. Uh, legend tripping online they say that he identifies as uh, the archetypal trickster so you can never really believe what he's saying like even when Ong's hat was going strong he would give interviews where he wouldn't be clear whether it was even a game or not right so it's, it's just as likely that Joseph Matheny just wanted to jump into this to troll everybody uh, because that's what Joseph Matheny finds fun sure yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many people I like that out there. They'll just take credit for something that they didn't do. It's just it just further confuses the mix. And I did notice something in the book, and uh, Temporal Recon was like this as well. We're going to talk about him next, but whoever that is, um, you know, a couple of these guys got really either starky or like they got real defensive in some of the questions that you asked. Well, it's, I guess it's because, I mean, I think Joseph Matheny just maybe that's uh, the nature of his personality. Uh, or maybe, you know, in fairness, maybe some of my questions weren't uh, quite as intelligent as he'd hoped they'd be. But uh, Temporal Recon is a different story because I never know, you know, there's the, with everyone in this, there's the possibility Temporal Recon is one of the authors of the story. And that's why he's such a tireless advocate for it being real because he's proud of the story. But um, assuming Temporal Recon is on the level, he's a, a like a true believer in the John Teeter story, and he's uh, I, I'll talk to him once in a while on Facebook, and he's he's very intelligent, and he um, can he's very good at uh, deflecting things that he doesn't want to talk about, and he can kind of lead you down the primrose path a little bit. He can also tell you. He, he has this way of kind of encouraging you, like, "Oh, you're on to something. Just keep keep digging. You're going to find the things I found." And like, I can't, uh-huh. I can't tell you, I can't give you any concrete information. I can only, you can only take the journey that I've taken, type thing. And that's another interesting thing about Temple Recon is there's tonal differences. So obviously, Temple Recon is itself a synonym. Nobody's named Temple Recon, but um, <laughs> right, his book is written almost like. Um, like a lawyer might write a book. It's very, um, you know, it's it argues the points in very clear, lucid prose. And then his blog uh, is written, has a real new age element to it. It, it kind of, you know, a little bit like mystical uh, leaning. So the, the tone of the two doesn't really match. And it's possible that it's just because he, he had to write that book in that style because that's his best way of getting his argument across. But then even further, he's done a couple podcast interviews. And when I hear him talk, he just doesn't, he doesn't have the same sort of syntax that I, I hear when I'm, when I'm talking to him on the internet. So okay. it's possible. Nobody knows who this Temple Recon is. It's possible the whole John Teeter team Right, has access to the Temporal Recon, you know, um, accounts, and uh, it's it's multiple dudes, right? And this is a way to further just to further on the legend, just possibly under a different name. 
Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and so there's a tie between Temple Recon and Joseph Matheny. Um, there's two ties actually. So Temple Recon wrote a blog once uh, called uh, "Journey Through the Incunabula," and it was about John Teeter. And Incunabula, uh, when you look it up in the dictionary, it's like an 18th century scroll or pamphlet. And the blog has nothing to do with scrolls or pamphlets, but what it does is. Incunabula is also the subtitle of Matheny's uh, Ong's Had book. So it's this nod to Matheny, and yet when asked uh, on, a, on a radio show, do you know Joseph Matheny? He said no, after this had been posted. So there's a tie uh, that he denies, right? Yet he put it up, he clearly put that out there for a reason, right? You don't throw the word Incunabula into something completely <laughs> unrelated to it. Unless you want people to pick up on it, right? Because God knows that's a word everybody uses every day in normal conversation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, and so, and yet, I, I remember him telling me, you know, when I, I, I like whenever I asked him about this when we were just talking casually, he pretty good at deflecting it. But when I asked him about it in the interview for the book, he basically says like, "I'm as surprised by that as you are." But once you get to the vantage point I'm at. Um, then you'll start to see how all these connections come together and, you know, like, hey, I'd love to get to that vantage point, but I'm, I'm not there yet, right? So there's there's a tendency to think that the if you want to go the Joseph Matheny route, that Temporal Recon is on Team Matheny, as it were. Sure. And does Temporal Recon, He, I guess he claims to be a time traveler himself, well, I don't think he he claims to be a time traveler, but what he he's writing a second book that's very ambitious in scope, and it sounds like there are other time travelers on this world line. There's evidence of them, uh, and when you look at the table of contents of that book, uh, which I included in its entirety in my own book, just because it was so, like the idea is if if what he has that table of contents. If he delivers on it, then it's going to be the most fascinating thing ever. But a couple, it reveals a couple things about him that I didn't know. And it was, you know, there's, there's chapters like my time in West Africa, but then there's like remote viewing chapters. So it sounds like if all this stuff is true, Temple Recon's the type of guy who's maybe plugged into some, you know, higher level geopolitical and like, and things like remote viewing. So maybe, you know, if, if he's telling the truth, maybe Temple Recon is, Op, you know, like an actual higher level operator than we are. What do you think? And I know this person is not in the book, but uh, there is somebody out there that calls himself John Teeter too. What do you think about this guy? Yeah, that guy is a, um, uh, uh, basically a, an imposter, but what's galling about him is he doesn't even seem familiar with the John Teeter story and he'll get on these programs. Like he's been on coast to coast. Yeah. I've, and heard, then he, I've heard him on darkness radio one time. Yeah, yeah. And you can tell the host just always, they kind of deflate within five minutes because he's, <laughs> he's this low energy guy and, he, and it's clearly bunk. But what he'll say, I remember one interview he did, I think it was with Richard Serrett. And he basically said, Oh yeah, that original John Teeter was, was not real. I'm the real John Teeter. So basically all he's done is lift the name, essentially John Teeter. And then, you know, if you were to ask him detailed questions about the post, I'm pretty sure he couldn't even answer. And, uh, beyond that, um, Kevin Moore, uh, who does the Moore show in, uh, in Britain, he interviewed him and it got a little bit contentious. And then, um, Kevin Moore did just some basic, uh, Research and he found a Facebook profile of basically this guy who calls himself John Teeter too, 
and he's just some regular dude like living a normal life like with you know like a job and a you know like living you know so he's not this time traveler he said he was and all you had to do was find his real facebook profile there's also a um when you google uh i think it comes up on like the first page of google um his son uh this the this real guy's son is has these has this like deep and abiding contempt for him and he says he's a fraud and he commits you know he basically um he he has fake degrees and he's basically been defrauding people his whole life and that you know I, I don't know how legitimate those claims are if maybe this son character is just bitter but it certainly seems to add up because he's not he's just putting you know essentially uh, garbage out there and I think it speaks to the hunger for John Teeter content that this guy gets a platform right when sure. clearly clearly all he's done is just kind of appropriate the John Teeter name. And, um, yeah, it's like, it's pretty dubious. I don't know. And I, th- I think also it's kind of unfortunate because he does take up like a, quite a bit of space in the conversation. Now it seems like, <laughs> you know, whenever I'm doing a, like an appearance like this one, people ask, Oh, are you going to talk about John Teeter too? And usually they're asking it like, cause if so, I'm not going to bother listening. Right. But it's like, he's now just managed to insert himself into this thing, despite being, you know, completely, out in left field and it's almost like i think the most galling thing about him and that this is what uh uh kevin moore was kind of saying in a personal conversation we had is like he's not even very you know like if you have this wild story kind of like andy Baziago, who's another guy who client claims to be a time traveler uh-huh. at, least, at least that's a good story right like you can listen to andy Baziago for you know two hours on on coast to coast am oh he's convincing yeah, and it's it's pretty out there, but it's yes, fun, right? Whereas, it is. whereas this John Teeter two guy is kind of you know Donald Trump might say he's a little bit low energy and he's just kind of droning on about stuff, and it's yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of lessened the whole uh, John Teeter, uh, you know, the discussion, I guess. <laughs> well, one one other person too is Oliver Williams, who of course is the used to have the website. Yeah, I think the website's still there, but it's just really outdated. It looks like uh, like Angel Fire GeoCities website or something from the year 2000. <laughs> but uh, Oliver Williams, is uh, he was one of these early sort of advocates for the story. Probably that Coast to Coast episode you listened to, it probably had Oliver Williams on. Uh, right. the one, that was certainly mm-hmm. the first one I listened to had Oliver Williams, and he's, you know, like at that time, he was a very good advocate for the story. He knew the posts inside and out because he archived them on his website and if he hadn't have done that the post later became uh, corrupted on the original site so if oliver williams hadn't done that these a lot of these posts may have disappeared so but there's speculation about him also um one because he does know the story so well and it kind of the same way as temporal recon you almost think okay you're out there selling this story is it because you know you're proud of of the story because you're behind it. And, uh, another thing that uh, people are a little bit suspicious about was, uh, there was a fade to black, uh, Jimmy church episode. And some people suspect Jimmy church, by the way, uh, it's being part of, um, maybe Matheny's crowd. And, uh, so there's a fade to black episode where, uh, Jimmy is interviewing Larry Haber. And then Jimmy keeps saying, Oh, this is strictly coincidence, but, Oliver Williams just called in and he seems like he's trying a little too hard to sell that it's, that's a coincidence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Almost like they're 
partners in in crime a little bit and um yeah and so oliver williams now uh he would say at the time he runs hot and cold and i guess he's in a cold uh, patch now because you don't hear anything from oliver williams anymore so i don't know if he's ever gonna come back and uh you know advocate for the story anymore or if he's just gotten tired of it or if you know who knows right like who knows if now okay so we've heard oliver williams voice we don't there's no like i, I can't remember i think i can't remember if oliver williams is even his real name it may be a pseudonym also but i there's think no, so i think you're right yeah and he said that he has a deal with his wife not to put his like real information out there so just like temporal recon all we have is this voice to go on right so it could be you know anyone there's no picture of oliver williams and um you know similarly there's actually some speculation that oliver williams sounds a little bit like a classic uh, coast-to-coast time travel caller single seven uh some people think he's that guy right so maybe yeah so i find like we're always listening to these people's voices because it's all we have so you know that's the one thing that can tell me that oliver williams at least he's not the temporal recon that I've heard on the radio, right? But that doesn't mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe when I'm talking to temporal recon on Facebook, I'm actually talking to Oliver Williams. Yeah, you don't right? know. That's the thing. It's the anonymity that the internet allows. Uh, Art Bell, you know, and, and this is the thing about Art Bell is that you know I can remember listening to him way back in the late '90s, mostly in the late '90s. Cause by the early <laughs> 2000s, I kind of stopped listening to him and. That I picked coast to coast back up with when George Norrie was was there, but because uh, Art, you know, always liked to quit and then come back and, but um, you know, he, a lot of the stuff that he did on coast to coast in those in that time has now kind of been proven to have been just for show. Like, yeah, the, like, have you ever heard the Area Fifty One call? You ever heard? Oh that yeah, one? for sure. Yeah. The, yeah, it's a classic, and you know, there's other classic, um, classic Art Bell callers. Like, um, you know that, and that that was the thing about Art though is you know, may, so with the Area Fifty One caller, he may have helped you know bring that along. But there's other cases where you know another classic is Harlot the Witch, right? So is this a real witch or is this like an actress calling in? And does Art know or is he just? He maybe he knows she's not a real witch, but he's just letting it breathe because it's good radio, right? Sure. Like that's that's what I always think when I think of Art Bell is that uh, he has a real knack for knowing, you know, when a caller was good, he let it go for several segments, right? And that's why. So in Joseph Matheny's um, narrative, he claims that it was actually the uh, the Art Bell that time travel was a hot trope on the Art Bell show at the time, and it's what inspired them. And he said he'd called in a couple times pretending to be different time travelers. But yeah, Art Bell is involved in the story in a number of ways. And it's interesting because he only later started kind of pushing it. Like you say, you know, with the Area 51 caller, maybe it was made up. But I don't think Art was behind this because he wasn't really promoting it. But so there's obviously the first and foremost that, the post occurred on Art Bell's message board, post to post. But there were also two faxes sent to Art Bell in 1998 by John Teeter. And this is so fascinating to me because – now, these aren't signed John Teeter, and they actually have some discrepancies with the John Teeter post. But what's so fascinating to me is that you can look at this from a couple of different angles. Now, you remember we said earlier how John went briefly back to 1998 
Now, right. let's pretend let's pretend this is fiction. These people that wrote the story know they sent these two faxes to Art Bell. So then they want to account for them. So they say, oh, yeah, and we went back to 1998, right? Uh-huh. Or, uh-huh. or it's real. And here's one of the th- – the you know, every once in a while, there's something that really grabs me on the, on the John Teeter's real side. And um, one of the things John offered – there's a poster called Pamela who was interacting with him, and she interacted with him. Uh, more closely than anyone else. They talked on instant messenger. He uh, gave her some classified information, but he told her that if, um, if uh, she wanted to and other posters, he would send them letters or emails when he went back to 1998. And these people, Pamela and some of these other people who did it, they report experiencing these alter view phenomenons, which is, if you think of deja vu, an alter view is when instead of something occurring again, it's something is occurring differently. So this one poster who says he asked John Teeter to send him this mail, uh, he says he's driving down the street one day in, in like the current time after John had left, and uh, there's a Walgreens on this one corner that he drives by every day, and then suddenly there's no Walgreens there. Like there was mm-hmm. no – and so the, that is part of the, 19, the whole 1998 thing from the – John is real perspective. And the other thing Pamela says, uh, and this this really grabs me, and this is where it gets fun for me on the John Teeter's real side. She says that those Art Bell faxes, nobody talked about them in 2000. And so it, it's almost as if uh, what they didn't exist because John hadn't gone back to 1998 yet. Oh, it's like a, almost like the Mandela effect kind of thing going on there. Yeah, kind of. And, you know, I often... When I first encountered the Mandela effect, the first thing I thought of was yeah, time travel and altered, you know, has altered the world line in some way or another. Which yeah. actually brings up, uh, speaking of altering world lines, that's another thing that John sometimes uh, gets credit for is um, preventing Y2K. And in one of his last posts is he says, um, "I'm sometimes surprised that none of you wonder why Y2K never happened." So it's almost in his his narrative, he goes back to. Uh, the 1970s, and he makes he tells these engineers, "Oh, you have to do this, and you have to do that, so that we can avoid all this catastrophe." Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's that's an interesting part of it for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the other th- the other thing about those uh, faxes to Art Bell, he said, um, "There's a line that just jumps off the page, and it's that uh, there's a uh, a building that hasn't been there's a skyscraper that hasn't been built in uh, in their timeline." So. Of course, this makes everybody – and this is in 1998, and this makes everybody think of 9-11. And mm-hmm. so a lot of times this gets um, misquoted as there's a skyscraper missing. But uh, when you think of a skyscraper not being built, maybe he's referring to a One World Trade, right, which uh, went up on the 9-11 site. Mm, yeah, could be. Or it could just be the way that we interpret the language differently, I suppose. Um Rob, is there anything that you wanted to ask? Like, were you? Because this is like this. Uh, this is kind of new for Rob. He hadn't heard about this <laughs> stuff before until yeah, a few weeks ago. This is it's. This is one of those those things. I I haven't even been thinking about whether or not it's true because I, I really don't even care. It's just so fascinating. There's so many different different elements to that. This that are just just great. Yeah, know? and there's a little something for everybody. Like if you're if you go and read the post, like if you're into physics and math, and it's fun in that way. If you're into the philosophy of time travel, it's fun in that way. If you're into 
you know, dystopian science fiction. It's got that going for it. So it's, yeah, it's just a, a good time. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. And, it, you know, one thing about it, the first time that I came across it and really what interested me was the timeline of events. That's what really interested me. And it seems like this is someone that is a little bit of kind of like a utopian as a utopian point of view, but also at the same time, this could be someone in 2000 or 1999 looking and say, well, what like a kind of like a futurist, what is going to happen in the future? What, yeah, exactly. how, what, how do this trends go? And then he talks about being in this militia uh, during the Civil War. And you think about that time period. Well, you know, you had Ruby Ridge, Waco, Oklahoma City. You had a lot of talk about, I remember that time, because you had a lot of talk about militias and fighting the government. So that was stuff that was very much on people's minds in that, in that time period. Yeah, for sure. And uh, there was a article written about John Teeter, uh, and it basically said how, like, what makes this this story uh, persist. And one of the things is, if you're going to go into that space where it's people, you know, coast coast AM listeners, well, then why don't you greet them on their terms? Uh, one of the things that characterizes John Post, John's post, is that uh, he constantly stressing the Constitution, constantly mm-hmm. stressing uh, the Second Amendment. You know, don't let them come for your guns. So John Teeter wasn't. You know, John Teeter was on that end of the spectrum. He, you know, he wasn't, you know, advocating for the things Timothy McVeigh was, but he's closer to, you know, like a uh, a right wing militia guy than he was uh, like a left wing type. And um, to get back to what he said about uh, being a futurist, I always I think you can kind of divide uh, the his predictions into the ones that are grounded in some sort of specific detail, like the IBM fifty one hundred or. Um, there's a couple other things. There's a poem where he uh, talked about – somebody asked him if there's yeah. um, any poetry that he remembers. And he said a few lines uh, from memory. And then years later, this guy, uh, Larry Gluck, who works for the Department of Defense of all things, writes a poem that has all those all those same lines in it. What and, was it, like a soldier's promise or something like that? Yeah, a soldier's winter. Soldier's and, winter, um, yeah. And – this Larry Gluck guy does not look like he's in on it. He's just old retired like military guy. And somebody approached him. I think Oliver Williams approached him. And he's just never even heard of the John Teeter story. So who can, who can account for that? Right. And then, yeah, like I said, so there's these concrete ones and then there's, Oh, there's going to be conflict with Russia and China. Right. Like, and now granted, Russian conflict wasn't really on our minds in 2000, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about the narrative in 2000, like you said, in the U.S., it was closer to Waco, Ruby Ridge. 9-11 hadn't happened. So while there was terror, it wasn't you know, something that was front page news every day. And so, yeah, he um, even if he did was just this futurist guy, that's another facet that makes it pretty interesting, right, that he was able to – and maybe now's a good time to quickly mention the things he did get wrong. Uh, he said there'd be no Olympics after 2008. Uh, yeah, the Civil War obviously never started in 2004, although that's kind of, you know, kind of a gray area because what he says is like the like the emotions behind it and the, the sort of the thinking begins in 2004. So when do you want to say the real left-right split began? Was it George Bush's? 
you know, was it 9-11? Was it the Patriot Act? Was it Obama? You know, it's hard to really pin a concrete date when that divide got started to grow, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it. of course, you know, we're not in a nuclear wasteland, thank God. So that's that's a good thing. Yeah. But I guess, you know, like you said, he has a way out because he can just say, well, the further you go, the further you go in time, the more of a divergence there is between our universe and his universe. Yeah, so that's also, their or his way out, you know. Right. And there's also the the possibility that he did change things uh, for our world line that, you know, let's just say Y2K was the, was catastrophic on his world line. And that leads to this uh, civil war. And because we don't go through that, then everything, there are people that are that sort of the teeter believers that believe there's like a, um, an intentional like 10 year um, sort of delay that when he says 2004, he really means 2014. And when he says 2015, he really means 2025. Now that could just be grasping at straws because mm-hmm. you want to believe something, but at the same time, who knows? Right. Yeah. And did he talk about any other countries uh, besides the United States or just primarily this country? Yeah. <clears throat> It was it was primarily United States. He talked about his own experience. I can't recall if he – yeah, I don't know what happened to the other countries in the world after Russia nuked the United States. I'm assuming they were just getting by all, all right. I, I'm not really – I can't really recall that. But yeah, it was essentially the um, – and the, the one thing he, he said about Russia was that he didn't even consider Russia his enemy. He considered um, – Russia was the opponent of the American federal empire, the people in the cities, right? So it's almost kind of like if you think about, uh, you know, some people on the right uh, are kind of, you know, like like they'll watch RT because they find the news on RT is closer to the truth than the news on CNN or Fox News, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So it's it's like it's kind of, you know, I, I – I know I watch RT increase. I used to think, you know, I would see a link to something on RT and I'd be like, oh, that's that Russian state propaganda. But then I started watching a couple of the uh, shows like Crosstalk and you just get this perspective uh, that you don't hear anywhere else. So, you know, besides maybe something, you know, like Infowars or something like that. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely, I don't know. I just think you're dealing with someone that is just incredibly intelligent that could see these things coming down the road. Um, uh, and you could still see those kind of things just like kind of boiling under the surface. You really can. Um, so it's not, it's not too hard to believe that that could possibly happen someday. And another point too, you know, I mean, the, the, the sheer genius of some of the stuff that they write, that he, they, it write about is, you know, what were we talking about during this last election here in the United States? We were talking about how there's, is this divide between rural areas, small towns, and then large cities. And that's exactly what he was talking about. So that's interesting. Yeah, exactly. And again, that divide, you know, it's not like that divide didn't exist. I remember, you know, when I started to become politically aware, it was probably, or the first election I really cared about was probably the 2004 election. And that was the same thing then, like, you know, liberal elites. What's that book? It's uh, What's Wrong with Kansas or something. It's basically arguing that, you know, why do rural people vote for 
Republicans when, you know, Democrats will give them entitlements that are in their best interest, right? Yeah. And so, and that that was when I first sort of started hearing that stuff, and, and you still see it. And, of course, John was on – not on the side of the uh, – so if, if, if John is – asked to pick between you know steve bannon and jared kushner john is a steve bannon guy (laughs) yeah all the way for sure you told me too um that there were some new revelations that uh or some new things that you've discovered since you've written the book yeah one of the great things about um writing a book like this is people reach out to you right and uh and so i you know, I, I don't even want to take credit for this because it's what people have have come and told me. I don't I, I don't know if they want me to use their names or not. But um, uh, so somebody asked John. Um, so one of one of John's deals was uh, he wouldn't tell you anything that would allow you to um, you know make some money because that would be unfair to people that were making money the hard way. He wouldn't tell you something that would let you um, avoid death by probability. So he wouldn't say, "Oh, there's going to be an earthquake here." And um, so somebody asked him uh, a question about this, and then he says, in a hypothetical way, uh, he d- goes on for a while, and then he says, suggesting there's a war coming is a bit different than saying avoid Washington, D.C. at 3.45 a.m. on March 12, 2015. Now, he's not saying anything happens at that time, mm-hmm. but it's curious because this is the one concrete date that's just out there. And you know, when you're reading it at the time, you don't think anything of it. You just think, oh, he just picked that out of a hat. But that's a really interesting week because two things happened um, that week, March 12, 2015. One, it's the week that Putin uh, disappeared for a week. I don't yeah. know if you remember that. I do but remember it was all, that. It was all over the news. Putin's, nobody can find Putin. He's probably been killed, right? Something's going on. But then, of course, Putin did reemerge. And, of course, this dovetails with the whole Russian nuke idea. But something else happened. Um, this woman named... Um, Captain Heather Cole, who is uh, a, the command of uh, strategic operations in the U.S. Navy, um, was fired. And this is a woman that essentially is one of these people that has their finger on a, you know, the button of nuclear uh, submarines. And so this woman gets fired, and it's mainstream news. Uh, nobody knows exactly why she's been fired. It's on Fox News, and then it disappears from Fox News, and um, it's on, you know, like legit mainstream military news sites basically saying this woman was fired and we don't know why and it's also on more conspiratorial uh websites saying this woman was fired because she refused an order to um fire a nuclear missile at uh, russia so it's just it's interesting to me that the one concrete week that john provides these two things happen with russia Hmm. yeah i mean what's the odds that's that is that is strange. It's strange. And I guess if, you know, to play devil's advocate, you could say, if I pick any week in the future, something is going to happen that week, right? And if my story is broad enough, maybe it will dovetail. But, you know, it's little little things like that. And the other, the other thing that's developed, it's something sort of a mea culpa I want to put out there because one of the predictions that I have in the book and that I've mentioned uh, whenever I've done uh, these radio appearances is um, – and, and it always gets brought up in every – article about John Teeter is that uh, he predicted the segue. Somebody asked him about um, what what is Project IT and that th- it was this mysterious marketing campaign for nobody knew what it was yet. And then John said, it looks like some kind of motorized scooter. And um, so this is in Temple Recon's book. Uh, 
and it just gets you know it's kind of like a, a meme it just gets repeated right and so but i recently did some digging and again this is as a result of some of these people that reached out to me they started asking me questions and i said okay well you know let me uh so I ordered the book from the library, Codenamed Ginger by Steve Kemper, which is a Harvard Business School Press. And it turns out the information was out there at the time. Uh, John Teeter made that prediction on January 29th, and the Hartford Current was aware of what um, Project IT was on January 9th. And apparently, like web sleuths, probably knew even before that so this is something that gets repeated time and again so just in all you know honesty and and like diligence i just i want to sort of debunk that because i've i've put that forward as something that's like increasing his validity when really it's just kind of this thing that's self-perpetuated right uh like you read it in one place and then it just kind of becomes the truth even though you know when you actually look into it it's not not true after all sure yeah, this 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 thing is nothing. But it really is a, like a rabbit hole. It really oh, yeah, honestly a, is. Yeah, and that's why, like, sometimes when I'm doing these shows, uh, I find it's hard, like, to just keep it reined in because you end up going off in all these different directions. Uh-huh. And if you're not familiar with the story, it's like, well, what's what's he talking about now? There's that too, and you know, like, there's probably like a dozen things, do- dozen aspects of this that, you know, we haven't mentioned just because they haven't come up in the course of conversation. But yeah, there's, it's like, there's, I think in my word document of the John Teeter post is like 600 pages, right? So there's a lot of content. There's not only the content that John wrote, but there's the content that people addressed uh, to John, which here's just another one of those things we haven't gotten to. Uh, there's a theory that the reason John was so, uh, eloquent and able to answer so quickly was because a lot of these people interacting with him were plants. Uh, the hoax hunter looked for he'd take the, the usernames of these people and logically assume you know most a lot of people use the same username across different forums, right? And he did a lot of work and he could only find eight people he could concretely prove were real. You know, one of them's Olaf Phillips, who uh, you know runs Paranoia Magazine, and. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a few people he could find, and the rest, who knows? Maybe it's just all Joseph Matheny and Oliver Williams just creating accounts and going nuts, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or like the 50 guys that are that are doing it. You, you know, the, the other theory is, is that this could just be one of those things that just self-perpetuates itself. In other words, like the original guys give up on it, and then some other guys take up, take, take up, take up the mantle. Yeah, and yeah. that's um, that's actually um, – so when you read about alternative reality gaming, there's a book called uh, This Is Not a Game. And one of the uh, primary facets of an alternate reality game is that eventually it – in order to continue to exist, it has to jump outside the boundaries of the original game. And so this kind of gets what we were talking about earlier. It's like now I'm a player in this game, right? And I'm writing – I'm two layers removed from – the original post because I'm not even writing about the post so much as I'm writing about Joseph Matheny and, and temporal recon. Right. And yeah. then, and then who knows at some point, somebody's going to write about me, right? Like somebody's theoretically going to write about my appearance on Jimmy church and, and oh, maybe I was in on it with them all along. Right. Even though I was too young. Right. But you know, and that's kind of like, you know, I saw this great uh, musical here in Toronto. I don't know if it, uh, if it 
played in the in the United States, but it's called Mr. Burns, and it's about so the, it's another post-apocalyptic uh, deal. And it, in the first act, it, there's these people sitting around a campfire and they're telling stories about the Simpsons, and um, because there's no electricity, there's no there's no media, and then in the second act, um, they're Paging these Simpsons episodes, but they're not wholly accurate because all they have is their memory to go on. And then in the third act, it's this crazy, uh, no, almost no relation to the Simpsons, but you know, there's these big hulking Smithers puppets, and it's just it's this one kernel that they have remaining, like 200 years in the future, right? So who knows? Maybe that's what the John Teeter story is going to uh-huh. be, right? Like 50 years from now, people are going to be talking about. You know, the maybe the person who comes after me, right? <laughs> like the and so, yeah, I like to I like to think of it like that as we're all participants in the, in this game, a, and a, it's a myth that perpetuates itself. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think also there's a line about, um, you know, legends. Um, not only is the internet a uh, place that will uh, perpetuate legends, but legends have arisen about the internet itself, right? And so this is probably our one of our earliest uh, internet myths, right? Because this was right around the time, up until then, you know, a lot of people were still connecting via dial-up. There wasn't a ton going on on the internet. And this was right around the time that, you know, if you look at, if you think about, you know, now where we're at, where, you know, there's an, inner, I don't know what, the only thing coming to my mind is something horrible. It's Daisy's Destruction, right? But there's this, I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's this horrible deep web, like, um, snuff video. Oh, I know. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's kind of like there's these stories that we talk about, you know, the the John Teeter posts are their own kind of, it's like this core of, of content. And then we get removed from it talking about it and talking about it. just like no one, like very few people have seen Daisy's destruction. Uh, like, you know, thank goodness it's horrible, but you're on 4chan on any given day, there's going to be a bunch of posts talking about it. Right. It, so we're kind of in this weird, like hyper, uh, you know, postmodernism now where, you know, it's, everything is so self-referential and it's just really fascinating time to be alive. Yeah. It's very metaphysical and surrealist at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and the internet is the ultimate uh, ultimate area for that, the springboard for that. Well, Mike, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, tell people where they can get the books, and also uh, tell us about some of your other writings. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the book's called Who Authored the John Teeter Legend? You just type that into Amazon, and it'll come up. There's also an audio book of it. Um, you can also go to my website, uh, mikesove.com, S-A-U-V-E. And yeah, I, uh, so basically I have a journalism background. I went to school for journalism. I've done, uh, I've written for the National Post, which is big paper here in Canada. It's kind of like USA Today, I guess, of Canada. I've written for uh, Variety, the Hollywood Trade Magazine. I've uh, done a bunch of film writing. And um, about 2012, I started writing uh, novels. I've had two novels published by uh, uh, Montag Press. One's called The Wraith of Scroman. Uh, it's sort of a coming-of-age story with some uh, occult elements. And then the other one's called The Apocalypse of Lloyd. And I think people that are into these subjects would probably get a kick out of that because it's about – it's an apocalyptic uh, scenario. But the the kind of running joke is that it's a teenage boy basically stuck in his uh, parents' basement uh, during the apocalypse. So he's more worried about, you know, like – 
how much like barbecue sauce is left and like trying to sneak in uh, girls and stuff than like the br- breakdown of logic and order going on uh, all around him. So yeah, those books are available too on uh, my website has links or you can, or you can find them on Amazon. Also um, just uh, I've got an agent now. So things are kind of looking up a little bit. Uh, I've got a young adult book that she's uh, pitching to the major publishers. So hopefully something uh, pans out there. And then in the future, I've, I'd like to do – I kind of see my career as having two streams, one writing the fiction, which I enjoy doing, and then writing books like this about you know, subjects of this nature. I, I, I'd love to um, write a book about uh, the whole meme magic phenomenon from this past election. I find that really uh, fascinating. Okay. Yeah, like the, like the Pepe the Frog and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But some of the strange coincidences around that, and just like we were talking about earlier with the internet and the kind of the magic, magical thinking that manifests on the internet. So I think that might be it. Be kind of a ambitious project, but I might take that on next. Yeah, absolutely. That that sounds really interesting. I would love for you to come back on when you get that out. Uh, well, Mike, thank you so much. Um, st- we're going to close this section out. Uh, stay on the line for us, and we're going to be back on Conspiracy Normal. <laughs> marathon night for us the second show that we're doing that will be posted at some point <laughs> i'm losing my mind because it's all all these different timelines man that's what's going on there's multiple atoms and you need to help them find a way to the to, to the real timeline and you can help by talking about conspiracy normal and adam saying as much as possible online. yes exactly so please talk about conspiracy normal all that you want post as much stuff about conspiracy normal so my alternate time traveling selves can find their way home you're like leo in inception right now i am dude <laughs> like what'd you think of that man 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 uh no it's i uh I don't. I don't really delve into think, trying to think too hard about multiple uh, <laughs> avenues of time travel. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I don't know. I just. I do believe in like multiple dimensions and stuff like that. But I, I think I don't know. I have a really simplistic sort of view toward it. You know, nothing that goes so complex. All these alternate, um, you know, al- alternate happenings and all that. Yeah, it's a complex story. Yeah. I really think it's just one of these internet things that just gets perpetuated. Well, turning from that, uh, Rob, you wanted to mention something about Bill Nye, the science guy. Yeah. Um, so we were talking earlier. I know you haven't seen it, but there's, I was really excited about this because I thought, you know, I, I grew up watching Bill Nye and I thought this was going to be really cool, but there's just some really strange sort of elements to it. Like, um, I don't know. I, and and. I don't really want to give my opinion too much here. I kind of wanted to just see what our listeners think, uh, see if we can get some feedback from them, if any of them have seen it. Um, but like there was, there's one episode where he's like praising Monsanto. There's another where he's talking about Big Pharma and how they're they're great, you know, and it just it feels kind of 
I don't know. There's something kind of bizarre, maybe scripted about it. And I mean, obviously, it's just a scripted show, but like, it's more like, um, I don't know how to put it. I guess it feels more like rather than promoting science, he's promoting big business. Um, other than like, probably a lot of people don't know. See, like, what I, I haven't seen the show, and honestly, I never have seen a single episode of Bill Nye the Science what? Guy. Like, no, I think that was like, like, wasn't that for kids in, like, the 90s? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, yeah. Yeah, so I think I was a little older. I was a kid in the 90s, know? so, yeah. It was- <laughs> so everybody talk about Bill Nye, the science guy. Of course, you know, I'm, I'm fam- most familiar with him about because he did that uh, debate, you know, remember the debate he did with Ken Ham at uh, the, cre- the Creation Museum? They did that about three about three years ago. They did this debate where they debated each other. So that's what I'm mostly familiar with Bill Nye. Um, from what I understand, a lot of people were criticizing him for being political. And otherwise, one of the things they're talking about was climate change. Uh, a lot of people didn't agree with his stance on that. And then a lot of people didn't agree with, there was some, there was one about, I think gender, or he said something about there were 53 genders or something like that. Yeah. I haven't seen people. This is what I've just been seeing people post on Facebook. I like Adam Ruins Everything more. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I've watched that. That is a good show. That's funny. Um, Luke, I understand that you had a mystical experience with a shaman. We'll just oh, leave yeah. everybody with this. Yeah, I had. I got shouted at a bunch of times and then felt in weird ways. <laughs> well, you went to a party last night, right? Yeah, so uh, I went to, uh, you know, I, I talked about before on er, on an earlier episode about the Abita parties that happen around here with all the EDM kids and stuff. Okay. Uh, the island Abita, party. I don't know what, what are you talking that, about? That's just the group that, that hosted. That's what they call oh, okay. themselves. All uh, right. They're all the right. ones that funded, I guess. Okay. So you had like the island party I talked about a while back. And then you had the, the forest party where everyone's like tripping on psychedelics out in the woods. Uh, and so they hosted this and, I'm, I go down there and I got my beers with BYOB event. I got my beers with me. And I sit on the, this parking block and I'm just like sitting back watching the fire spinners and people spin poi and all that. And this dude comes and sit and just plops down next to me. And, um, he, he like grabs my arm and pulls me into him and like kisses me on the side of the face first <laughs> off. And I'm, I'm just like, dude, get away from me, you know, push him back. And then, um, so we, we get to talking a little bit and, and uh, he's like, here, here, come sit here. You know, I'm going to heal you. And he's like making up these Native American phrases that I don't even think are real. He's like, oh, team talk when shock with Luqua, you know, that means, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, wisdom is in the eye of the belt, whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he also looked like a pirate. Yeah, he, he looked like a pirate. He was wearing a do-rag and uh, he looked like he was wearing mascara. So that was weird. And, and uh so he he was like touching me in random places on my back and stuff and like your chakra <laughs> points. Yeah, my chakras, I guess. I don't know. It it was definitely weird. You uh you have an interesting life, my friend. <laughs> you go to some interesting places. Rob and I, we just kind of stay at home and just fall asleep early. Live vicariously through well, you. Well, I do that a lot. Believe me, I I just could not sit in another night. I've been working seven days a week. So when I had an opportunity to, and some energy, some actual energy to go out and do something, you know, yeah. take advantage of it. Yeah, it's true. It's always good to have that. 
Well, Luke, I want to thank you for being here, man, making your making your appearance, and you might show up on the next show. There is there is an extreme possibility you may be on the next show. Well, if Alyssa is cooking, I'm I'm most likely be here. Yeah, well, I, I there's some time travel involved in this. Remember that. See, so, I've learned to time travel, and I'm keeping it from you guys. Yeah, yeah. Someday I'll expel well, you, my wisdom. Well, you are a, you are a mythical creature, <laughs> so time travel could be one of your powers. Could I get one of our listeners to like paint a portrait of me looking all regal and stuff? Oh, okay. Well, put that out there, or a sketch, even just a sketch. I'd be yeah. Wicked. Okay, put that out there too. We'll, we'll, if you want to draw a picture of Luke. <laughs> Scan it and send it to yeah. us. I, w- I want to be like chest poofing out, like proud, like make my chest a lot bigger than it actually is, too. Yeah. Yeah. Be- being attended by the Harp Twins. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah. Like a <laughs> uh, fan with the palm leaf and like feeding me grapes on the other side or actually giving me a beer. There you hey, go. I actually got to meet the Harp Twins when I was down in Atlanta for the Walker Stalker Con. Got to take a picture of them and every- with them and everything. Did you see them naked? I did not see them naked. No, there was no harp twins. Cool naked. story, bro. No. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you see them naked, I don't want to know, dude. <laughs> All right, uh, guys, thank you so much, and we'll be back next time on Conspiranormal. Made possible by listeners like you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. 
With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.